Well, this was an important day in the year 2000, end of the summer, and it was the day that I was going to go and talk to the father of the woman who would someday be my bride. So um, it, it was an important day. And uh, late summer, I was out kind of preparing, you know, what am I going to say? And this guy, he, he, uh, he, I had never met him before. I just called him. I was like, hey, my name's Jeremy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm just trying to think through, what am I going to say to this guy? We're going to meet at Cracker Barrel and get some, get some food together. And um, as, I'm, as I'm kind of preparing my mind for this conversation, uh, I'm walking down the street and I come across a couple of Mormon missionaries. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, it, maybe it would have been better to just be like, just go, just keep walking, just keep walking. But I, you know, they threw the lure, I bit, and so we just, we were talking. And pretty soon, they're, they're sharing with me. I don't, I don't know if you've had this conversation before. It's kind of, this, it's kind of the same uh, strategy. They're very, they're very highly trained. They know their Bibles very, very well. And it wasn't long before they got to the point, and it usually gets to this point if you talk to them long enough, where they say, "What? just do this. Especially, especially if you're trying to leave the conversation, here's what they'll say. Just do this. Just... Take this, take this book, Book of Mormon, and pray and ask God if this, if this is from him. Or actually, I think it's more specific. Ask God if Joseph Smith is a prophet. I had been in a season at this point, because I was pursuing Amy, I'd been in a season where I'd been fasting quite a bit. Um, I had had some pretty dynamic, supernatural encounters. And this was perhaps the most powerful one. Just just take this book and pray and ask God if Joseph Smith is a prophet. And as they spoke those words to me, I was overwhelmed with an incredible sense of a spiritual presence. It was euphoric. It was electric. It was powerful. It was a burning in my bosom. It was very powerful. You need help in that situation. This is, it was real. This, is, this was a supernatural encounter of some sort. There was no doubt about it. Very, very pleasant. And I will tell you the rest of the story at the end of this sermon. Now that I have your attention. We are in 1 Corinthians. It does relate. I'm not just, I'm not just a storyteller. I, it, it relates. But let me just pause. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going from verses 6 to 13. Uh, up to this point, Paul is just trying to pull these Corinthians back. They are not excited about Paul's message and Paul's gospel. They're very excited about the world's wisdom. They live in Corinth. It's on a a very significant trade route east to west, everything that's going from Italy uh, in the, let's see, 
in the west. Everything is going through Corinth to get to the east to Asia Minor. So there's a lot of travel, there's a lot of trade, there's a lot of commerce, there's a lot of money, and there's a lot of self-promotion, there's a lot of business, there's a lot of social ladder climbing, there's a lot of social elitism, and the Corinthians are really loving the wisdom of the world. There's a, the, the public orators of the day are very good speakers, and uh, Paul has come with his gospel. It's not shiny, it's not pretty, he's not a good preacher. And so they are starting to distance themselves from Paul. Paul is coming in and, and just trying to explain to them the dynamics of, the, of how the gospel works. What was happening when I was preaching my gospel? What was happening when I was preaching poorly in, in your presence? Well, poorly is maybe not the word that he would use, but weakly, at least, as in W-E-A-K. So here we are in verse 6. Paul has again and again said, I didn't come in wisdom. I did not come in the wisdom of this world. I am not one of your public orders. God's ways are just different. I'm not claiming to be that way. In verse 6, he says, Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Let's hope this thing works. Well, you know... Sometimes, there it is, okay. There are three things in this first little phrase that I want to point out. Wisdom. From verses 6 to 12, again we're in chapter 2, verses 6 to 12, Paul is going to tell us about wisdom. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. It's going to take three steps to tell us what he, what, to get us where he's wanting to take us. He's going to describe the kind of wisdom he's talking about in verses 6 to 8. Step 2, he's going to defend his point from the Old Testament in verse 9. Step 3, he's going to identify the ultimate source of his understanding in verses 10 to 12. The second thing that Paul's going to do is he's going to pick up this notion of, notion of imparting. Okay? 2.6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's going to talk about wisdom, then he's going to talk about impartation, and then the third thing he's going to do, he's going to talk about this notion of being mature. That's what we'll talk about next week, verses 2.14 to 3.4. So that's kind of the setup of where we're going today. And as we go there, let me remind us of what Paul has already said about wisdom from the perspective of God's wisdom. It's different. God's wisdom is different. So if you've got your Bibles, just flip back one page to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. So here Paul's going to talk about a different kind of wisdom than the world's wisdom. Listen to this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Preaching Christ crucified. The death of God's Messiah for sinners is the definition of God's wisdom. This is kind of strange. It's different than how the world is talking about wisdom. 
Paul's definition of wisdom in the book of 1 Corinthians is God's Messiah dying for sinners. The wisdom of God is not to be thought of in terms of philosophy. God's wisdom in the sense that Paul's talking about here is not a worldview or a collection of ideas or ponderings about how the world turns. God's wisdom is not a concept. It's a person and an event in and through whom thwarts the world's exaltation of its own ideas. God's wisdom is revealed through the proclamation of a message about a person. The world has beliefs about what is true, what's beautiful, what's transcendent. And the crucifixion of Jesus has proved all of that to be foolishness. Christ crucified is God's wisdom. So we're coming into this with Paul having already given us his definition of wisdom. So, he's going to talk to us about wisdom in three steps, remember? Step number one, the wisdom is not of this age. Chapter 2, verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. It's not from these parts, not from this planet. It doesn't come from the collective ideas of humanity. Their systems of understanding the universe, it's not from this realm. It's not from this current age. This is the language of Jewish apocalyptic expectation. Something someday is going to happen and it's going to be all different. You're not going to like wake up and go to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken for lunch. It's, just, it's going to be, it's another age. The, the, the current world, the current age, its systems of existence will someday cease and a new redeemed state of existence will emerge. The old realm of this present broken world will pass away. A new age will dawn. This is the messianic expectation. The Jewish expectation when you read the Old Testament and its prophetic hopes for creation. Something's going to happen at the end. It's going to change. And when Jesus arrives on the scene and announces that God's kingdom is at hand, it is the announcement of the inauguration of a new age. This was strange to them. (laughs) He's coming and he's announcing this expectation is being fulfilled. So check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The, the context, real quick, the context is um, Paul's reminding them about something that took place out in the desert when Israel was in the desert and they're drinking water from the, the rock. And, and so that's the context. He just talked to them about that. And he says, now these things happened to them, these things happened to Israel as an example, and they were written for our instruction, listen to this, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The end has come. It has arrived in an inaugural form. Some people ask, are we living, you know, are we living in the last days? Are these the last times? Are we living in the last days? And the answer is yes. And they have been the last days ever since Jesus showed up. And especially since he rose from the dead. 
which was the first breath, the dawn of the new creation. He overcame death. He rose from death. All things are being made new. The new age has come upon us. The final things, the new creation, the end times have been inaugurated. The old age is passing away, right? Galatians chapter 1, Christ has come to deliver us from the present evil age. It's already taking place. It's already happening as people put their trust in Jesus. The present evil age is being invaded by the coming age. And until Jesus comes to consummate the new age and redeem our bodies, redeem the earth, and put all his feet under, or all his enemies rather, under his footstool, until then we're living between two ages. We could talk about it as the already not yet. There are some, some senses in which the kingdom has already come. There's some senses in, in, in which the kingdom is not yet here. We're waiting for, we're for sure waiting for stuff. Right? Amen? I, I hope. Okay. Paul wants us to understand that the wisdom that he's imparting is not from this age. It's part of the age to come. It's already breaking in. The wisdom is not of this age. It's not talk show wisdom, right? There might be some common grace insights from talk show. I went on to, you know, DrOz.com or whatever. I don't know what the address was, but I looked up Dr. Oz this week. He's got like, you know, how to pop a pimple the right way and all kinds of weird stuff. Here's one. What are the signs of aging skin? Okay, this is not evil. This is not wicked. This is probably helpful, I guess. You're not going to find the signs of aging skin in the Bible. What the Bible is going to talk to you about in terms of aging is you don't have to despair when you notice that your body's falling apart. It's a wisdom not of this age. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you, says the Lord. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. This this is a different source of wisdom. It's addressing your life differently than the wisdom of this world is going to address your life because this world is only going to be able to take its collective insights and apply it to your life. They can't see what is yet to come. One popular talk show host next week is going to interview a 16-year-old boy who killed his molester. Pop psychology, public opinion, good intentions are not going to be able to handle the issues that are stirring in this young man's soul. He needs and we all need something beyond what humanity can provide for us in its collective wisdom. All the ideas of this age will not add up to any help for us, ultimately. This wisdom that Paul's offering us is not of this age. Neither is it a wisdom of the rulers of this age. Chapter 2, verse 6. It's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So why does Paul bring this in? Okay, He's he's telling us about how this wisdom is not from here. It's not from this planet. It's not from these parts. And it's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. He's just pointing out that those who are at the top of the pecking order in society, those who are at the top don't contain the kind of crucial understanding that Paul's talking about. 
Their dignified social status doesn't indicate an understanding of true wisdom, necessarily. Those who are on the top of this world now will soon be gone, and so, we're, so will their, their so-called wisdom. It's, it's a passing away wisdom. The temptation, of course, is to look at this world, look at, this, look at, it, at its systems, look at the sec- success of this world, look at what it takes to be successful in this world, and to say, that's, that's what I want, because that's where I want to go. And that's the answer. And Paul's simply reminding them of the destiny of this world. Recently, I've gone up to Rockefeller Preserve here, just north of Sleepy Hollow. Have you visited this? Rockefeller Preserve. Um, 1886, William Rockefeller purchased Bartlett's Castle. Had it torn down. Built a 204-room mansion. Whoa. 204 room mansion called Rockefeller Hall and in the the late 1800s he lived there in what was known as the the, uh, finest country seat in America. It's overlooking the Hudson River. Beautiful. You can go there. Carriage paths, cobblestone carriage paths. Old, old, old fire hydrants. Beautiful. It's It's like the Shire. You you just, you just walk through there, you're like, this is, he, he brought in all these exotic trees, these trees that look like, you know, firm twisted spaghetti that just go up, that goes up to the sky. I mean, it's just crazy, beautiful. And you can go to the, to the spot where the, where the house was, the, uh, and, and all that's left is the outer retaining wall. This, this, this is like just over 100 years ago. All that's left is the outer retaining wall because it's all passing away. This was a powerful man. It's all passing away. And by way of contrast, the wisdom that Paul is talking about is leading to our glory, Christians. Verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom with uh, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Two things I want to point out. One, it was decreed before the ages. It is a predestined wisdom. Specifically, it means that Christ crucified was the plan all along. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, it was no surprise to God. Christ crucified was the plan all along. This is God's wisdom. It was decreed before the ages. The cross was decreed before the ages. This is just what the Bible tells me to believe. I just believe it. doesn't mean that it doesn't bring up some hard issues, and it does, but this is what the Scripture says. It's decreed, and it's decreed because God has intended all along to usher those who trust in Him into a state of existence that is beyond anything we have ever, ever dreamt of. It was decreed before the ages, Paul says, for our glory. Meaning, in contrast to the rulers of this world who are passing away, we will share in God's glory. It will be ours to behold. It will be ours to enjoy. It will be ours to be transformed. Okay, is this thing popping in and out? We okay? Okay, I get kind of paranoid about that. Every week I'm like, is it okay? Is it on? It totally distracts me. That's why. (laughs) Okay. Christ crucified holds out 
a glorious future for us. That's what Paul's trying to say to, say to us. With, and, and with all of Paul's talk about crucifixion and suffering and the foolishness of the gospel, all these things that he's been, that he's been saying throughout this whole book, you'd, you'd get the impression that he's just like the perpetual rain cloud that's always saying, like, don't, you know, be, be foolish and, and don't pursue pleasure and, and don't do all the things that we'd want to do if Jesus would just let us, like, have fun or something. That's the, you get the impression as you read Paul, he's just, he's just a downer. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a 204-room mansion overlooking the Hudson? That, I, I think it would be really nice. I think we would enjoy that. Cobblestone paths, old you know, colonial lamp stands. And what Paul wants to say to you is, that's no mansion! This is only a hundred years ago and it is gone. It's no mansion. Christian, your destiny is glory. And the problem with the heart, as C.S. Lewis says, is that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex. And Lewis has no problem with drink and sex. He has a problem with people living for it. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You know how he closes it? We are far too easily pleased. Don't pursue these things and live for these things and embrace these ideas that lead to nothing. Embrace those things that lead to glory. God, this is what God has destined for you from before the time before time began. Christians, your destiny is glory, and the Corinthians are pushing themselves away from it because it's not pretty yet. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Suffering precedes glory. Through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and that just doesn't sound all that appealing. Additionally, it is a wisdom that is secret and hidden. Chapter 2, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This doesn't mean that Paul had some sort of special knowledge that he's only sharing with the inner circle of, of uh, you know, really mature believers. It's the, the secrecy, the, the hiddenness, does not consist in privatized content. Paul doesn't have a, a special scroll that he only opens up like when the, when the cool people come over. The secrecy of the gospel, as we've talked about before, is hiding in plain sight. It's hidden in the sense that people look at God's wisdom, Christ crucified, and they don't understand it. They just don't get it. They don't see what's so special about it. Chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul's language is very specific here. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. I mean, Paul's pointing out they crucified the Lord of glory. It's, it's pointing out an incredible blindness. 
incredible blindness in people who crucify the Lord of glory. Okay, so the great failure of the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age, is not that it doesn't have access to the content of God's wisdom. It has access to the content. The message of Christ crucified is going out. The world is, is hearing it, perhaps notionally, saying, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't like it, or, I don't, or it just seems stupid to me, or uh, that, that seems offensive to me. It's failure. The failure of the wisdom of the world is a failure to perceive glory. They crucified the Lord. If they saw glory, they would not have crucified him. But they saw no glory in this man. What's hidden from the wise is the glory of Jesus. The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me recap the wisdom of God. Um, it's not a wisdom of this age. It's not a wisdom of the rulers of this age. It's a wisdom that leads to glory for believers. It's a wisdom that is hidden and secret, hidden in plain sight in the gospel. And if the rulers of this world had understood it, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says they didn't understand it, and that was in fulfillment of Scripture. So now he's going to, step two, defend his point from the Old Testament. This is the wisdom of the world. If the, if the rulers of this world had, had recognized God's wisdom, if they had recognized the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have crucified him. Verse 9. But instead, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God prepared for those who love him. A lot of times people will go to this verse, they'll be like, I can't wait for heaven. Do you know that verse in 1 Corinthians? You know, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one's ever imagined what heaven's going to be like. This, Paul didn't just suddenly like change his stream of thought. Like he's talking about the wisdom of this world and how it's hidden, and then suddenly like, and Christians, heaven's going to be really, like, you know, there's going to be like bicycles with only one wheel or something, you know. Bicycle, one, okay. So that's a dumb Greek joke. <clears throat> okay. Um, so Paul's not switching the subject. When he says, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, he's saying that the Old Testament told us a long time ago that God's salvation is not something that mankind could have ever dreamed up. This message of Christ crucified is just, nobody would have ever imagined it. And so when he shows up, humanity is totally missing it, which is what Paul has been writing all along. So all he's doing is saying, just like the Old Testament said, no one ever dreamt of this. That's why they're missing it. Okay? So he's described this wisdom as a hidden wisdom. It's originating from a different realm of existence. Something that this world has altogether missed. And just like the scriptures have said, no one has ever dreamt of this. But, verse 11, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. 
So the world might have missed the wisdom of God, but some people have not missed it. These things God has revealed to us. Paul says that some of us are perceptive to the wisdom of God and that, and, and, and that those things that God has prepared for us, those things that God has prepared for those who love him, are made known to us, which is simply to say this. Paul's saying, I have seen God's salvation. I have understood this wisdom. The only way to explain it is the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, Paul's now going to make the case that the Holy Spirit is a source of revelation. Because the Holy Spirit knows everything about God. So verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Furthermore, Paul says, not only does God's Spirit know what God thinks, but God's Spirit has been given to us. That's the connection point. Verse 12, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So Paul's point is, Paul understands. I understand God's wisdom. Because the Holy Spirit has revealed it. God, Paul understands true wisdom. Paul understands God's wisdom. Paul understands this secret and hidden wisdom that he's been talking about. Paul understands it. Paul knows Christ because the Holy Spirit has made it known. He's leaning heavy on the Spirit of God right here as the authoritative source of his wisdom. Now this is really interesting Because in the next verse, Paul's about to open a whole can of worms. We'll talk about it more next week, but I I have to peek into it. I I have to open it a little bit here. And this is where Paul shifts from uh, now to this notion of impartation. He's he's imparting this wisdom. Um, Now... If you've been tracking with us so far in 1 Corinthians, you know two things about the church in Corinth. One is that they're highly gifted. They have been given a, 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 a some sort of abundant outpouring of the spiritual gifts so that in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that the church is not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, it's gone to their head, and so they have become more impressed with the gifts that they've been given than with the giver of the gifts. They're starting to distance themselves from Paul. I guess that's the yeah, that's the second that's the second thing I want to point out. One, they're very gifted. Two, they're distancing themselves from Paul and his gospel. Okay? Um, because he's not shiny enough. It's a message of a crucified Messiah. It's been delivered through a man who isn't regarded by them as a good speaker. Second Corinthians ten ten. They, they Paul says these people think that um, my presence with them i'm not very (laughs) impressive at all so they have a a high view of their spirituality they have a high view of their relationship with the holy spirit and they have a low view of paul and his message and now paul has just stated very clearly that this holy spirit is the one who has revealed christ to him So the Corinthians, high view of the Holy Spirit, low view of Paul. Paul says, oh, that's funny because the Holy Spirit's the one who revealed this to me. 
So watch what he does in verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's two things I want to point out here. One is that God's wisdom is revealed through words. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This this word imparting comes up two times previous in this passage. Once in verse 6 and once in verse 7. In verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Now the word translated we impart is translated in your NIV and your NASB as we speak. And that's that's a better translation, I think. Just the, It's the plain translation, the Greek word is to speak. So we speak, Paul says, among the mature, we speak wisdom. And we speak a secret and a hidden wisdom, and then down in verse 13, and we speak this in words. The wisdom of God comes through words. All this talk, this hidden wisdom, it's not of this age, it's not of the rulers of this age. All of that is a wisdom that is spoken. It's a wisdom that's revealed through words, sentences, paragraphs, grammatical constructions, conjunctions, prepositions, words. This ties directly back into what Paul was saying last week in verses 1 through 5, where we talked about how the gospel must be spoken. Must be, it must be communicated with words. I say spoken, but it could, it could be sign language, right? It could be through writing. It has to be through words. There has to be trans, transfer of content from one brain to another brain. And today we learn that this is because God's revelation of himself occurs through the use of words. You should open up your Bible on the first blank page, take a big black felt marker and write God's revelation of himself occurs through the use of words. That's why we call it the word of God. He he, he also reveals himself through nature. He reveals himself supremely through Jesus. Your only access to the person of Jesus and, and any knowledge about him is because the scriptures have been preserved from generation to generation. God reveals himself using words. Perhaps it's even worth pointing out God the Holy Spirit reveals himself through the use of words. That's the first thing I want to point out. We'll tie this together. Two, Paul's message, Paul's gospel is the Holy Spirit's gospel. It is the Holy Spirit's message. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who knows God, is the one who taught Paul these things. And Paul is now using words as the vehicle for transmitting the things of the Spirit to the people of the Spirit. 
That's what he means when he says, I'm interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. I'm taking the things of the Spirit and I'm transferring them to people of the Spirit through words. So if you're a person of the Holy Spirit, Corinthians, this is, this is, this is what he's doing. If you're a people of the Holy Spirit, then Paul's foolish message of Christ crucified for sinners is something that should be precious to you. These were people who highly valued their spirituality. And he's saying, it's really, that's really funny because um, I'm speaking things that the Spirit taught me and you don't like me. You can have remarkable gifts and not be a spiritual person because you see, true spirituality is not marked by giftedness. True spirituality is not marked by having some heavy presence of the spiritual gifts in your life. The spiritual person is a person who hears the gospel and sees the wisdom of God in it. They don't roll their eyes at the gospel. They don't distance themselves from the preacher who preaches the gospel. They hear the message of Christ crucified and they see the Lord of glory in the gospel. This is the sign of true spirituality. And this is where Paul has really been leading the Corinthians all along. He's just pulling them through this whole train of thought to get to the point where he can say, if you are truly spiritual people, then you should love this gospel because it's the Holy Spirit's gospel. So, God's Spirit, God's gospel go hand in hand. That's the point. God's Spirit... God's gospel go hand in hand. If you're rejecting the gospel and you think you're spiritual, you need to check yourself. That's what he's doing to the Corinthians. And I just want to say, let me take it one step further even. God's spirit and God's word go hand in hand. No prophecy of scripture, 1 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy of Scripture is something that is produced in human beings who are using words to communicate things that the Holy Spirit is intending to communicate. Holy Spirit speaks through words. First, uh, first Peter 2.20. Okay. That's obviously wrong. Second uh, Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Picture here. God is, through his spirit, inspiring all the scripture. This is just the doctrine of inspiration of scripture. That the Holy Spirit is the one who is moving these men to write these words so that we have this Bible. The simple point that I want to make here is a, a word of brotherly love to New Hope Fellowship who has, I would say, a, a mild to moderate charismatic practice and interest, myself included. Okay, so this is a word of, of encouragement, warning, wanting to have things in proper place for myself included. I would describe myself 
as a, as a charismatic with a seatbelt, I've said. That's Driscoll's phrase. I believe in the gift of prophecy. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe that it should be practiced according to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, which we'll get to. I believe in divine healing. I believe that people have the gift of healing. I believe that, that the Lord has spoken to me through, through, through dreams and through subtle impressions in my heart. Okay, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a charismatic person with a seatbelt. Okay, and I just want to appeal to New Hope Fellowship. Let's, let's make sure we have our seatbelt on as we look at these things. And this is the seatbelt. Word of God. If, if you have a fascination with the Holy Spirit, remember that the Holy Spirit has a fascination with the Word of God. If you are fascinated with things of the Spirit, He has spoken right here. If you'll hear people say sometimes, you know, I've just been, I've just been, this has been a dry season. God's not really speaking to me. And I just want to ask, have you been reading your Bible? Because these are words of the Spirit. Jesus said, my words are spirit. So that's, that's the, the seat belt. This is where God is most clear. The Spirit knows, the, the Spirit searches the depths of God. He knows God perfectly. And the Spirit is making God known to us through the Scriptures. If you want to be a pe- people of the Spirit, be a people of the Word of God. This is my, my definition of being a Spirit-filled person, is being a person who is filled with the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit is making it come to life in your heart, in your mind. He's illuminating it so that you see glory. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled, is to be filled with the Word of God and to see the glory of God in the Word of God. It's an inerrant source of revelation and it's a source of protection. This, this, is for, this is for our protection. It helps us to know what the Holy Spirit really thinks. Bible, the Bible helps us to interpret our spiritual, supernatural experiences. It is very easy to misinterpret supernatural experiences. Very, very easy to misinterpret supernatural experiences because we're mostly blind to the supernatural. It takes a miracle to pull us out of that when God saves us. And we, it's so very easy to misinterpret experience. And what the church in Corinth has done is they have taken this infatuation with the Spirit and it has become the lens through which they're hearing the message. And they're rejecting the message because experience is the lens. When the Bible would, would want us to, I was going to take my glasses off to make the point here, the Bible would want us to flip that around so that the Scripture becomes the lens through which we interpret the experience. Keeps us safe that way. So when you talk with Mormons and they start, for example, to go back to my illustration, they start sharing with you, just pray. Just pray and ask God if Joseph Smith is a prophet. And you start having an incredible supernatural experience. 
you can say, guys, I, I, I need you to stop. The second I said, guys, I need you to stop, boom, it was gone. The presence, whatever it was, I, I'm totally convinced that it was demonic presence. It was gone the moment I said, stop. I knew that this was not the Holy Spirit. I have had, I have had intimate encounters with the Holy Spirit that were, as I'm reading the Word of God, as I'm, as I'm thinking about the Word of God, there's a, a sense of the Spirit's presence. Even sometimes what I would think of as physical manifestations, I can, I can just sense a warmth. Um, the, the, I know that some of you know what I'm talking about. There, there, is, there, there, there are times where God's presence is so physically manifest. And, and my heart is rejoicing over the Word. There's content in my brain. Christ crucified is being, is being the, things are being opened up. I'm, I'm understanding things better. The Spirit is present. He's confirming. I am with you. I'm revealing. I've had those. And what happened that day when I was talking with the Mormons felt identical. I, I could not discern the difference between the two of them. The only thing that kept me from going, I think Joseph Smith Smith must be a prophet, was that I know that this book says that Jesus and the Father are one God. And Joseph Smith says, no, Jesus is one God and the Father is one God. So I said, guys, you need to stop. I quoted some scripture about Jesus says I'm the Alpha and the Omega and I just got out of there. And I was totally late to meet her dad as a result. And I locked my keys in my car while it was running like two minutes later. You must use the scripture as the grid for interpreting the experience. It keeps you safe because we don't know how to interpret those things. The bodies are, are, the flesh is in the way. We're, we're just, we're still, we're, the new age has broken into us. If, if you are Christ, you are new creation. Something has happened. Something very real has happened. New creation has begun. But you are awaiting the redemption of your body. Your brain is broken. Things are not working the way that they should be. We are waiting for things. And because of that, we do not have good spiritual discernment it, but just by kind of like going with what we think makes the most sense. This must guide us. This is the seatbelt. Praise God for his word. To guide us through, through all manner of very confusing situations. Praise God that he, that he guides us, that he provides a grid for us. New Hope, I, I hope that you are reading your Bibles. I hope that you're devout. We've talked about this before. We talked about this in the men's group. We've we've preached about it before. I I hope you have some plan for reading your Bible. Even if your plan is five minutes every day, I read ten verses. Okay, good. Lots of people, I imagine, I know for a fact that, that lots of people don't even have that. I'm pleading with you. Put your seatbelt on. Read your Bible. Know the Word of God. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us today. 
not as some invisible energy in the room, but as the one who has inspired the Scriptures and as the one who is taking the Scriptures and bringing them to life, as the one who is preparing the heart to receive the Scriptures, as the one who is glorifying Jesus as the Scriptures are proclaimed, Holy Spirit, you have done an amazing and miraculous work. You have shown into our hearts, God, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God of this age has blinded unbelievers, your word says, so that they cannot see the glory of Christ in the Gospel. But you have broke in on this age. The Holy Spirit you have sent from the age to come, this heavenly age, and He has broke in and we are tasting the future. The ends of the ages have come upon us and we are tasting the goodness of Your glory through the Word of God. And I thank You for teaching us this morning. I pray that You would help these things to just work through our minds and that you would massage them into our hearts so that we have a um, just a deeper understanding and that, that you would use it for the stirring up of our worship for you. I pray that this doesn't fall on hard soil. I pray that, that ideas wouldn't be cast aside as just just empty notions that Lord Jesus you would Help us to hear you when you say, my words are spirit. We thank you for these things and ask now that you would accomplish what you intend in our own hearts for the glory of your name alone, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.